So today, we are concluding our series where we are addressing some of your questions. And we're finishing off with a pretty big one. I guess all of these questions have been pretty big, but this one, this one's a biggie. And this was the topic that we by far had the most questions about. And that topic is science and the Bible. If you are someone who has been in church for a while, there's a good chance you have had a conversation, uh, maybe attended a class, watched a seminar video, something on this topic. And depending on your relationship with this topic, you, you might have a less than happy relationship with it. I know there have been people that have been driven out of churches because of how they address this topic. I know myself personally, I've been asked to not come back to a Bible study because of how I've talked about or how I expressed my feelings on evolution and creation. But before we kind of dig into the meat of this, I want to throw a few disclaimers up front so that you know where I am coming from when approaching this topic especially. Much of my educational background is steeped in science. Uh, a lot of my undergrad work was in archaeology, doing things like examining early hominid evolution and exploring megafaunal mass extinctions here in America. Uh, I have specialized in archaeology and history of the ancient Near East, and that is kind of the place and times in and around the Old Testament. So this is something that's been a big part of my background. Now, I'm not saying this to, you know, present a resume for how cool I am or why I'm speaking on this, but I want to tell you this and just kind of let you know where my leanings are and where my influences are in this topic. I think being aware of your own personal influences and your own personal biases is such a key aspect and so important to any discussion, and especially one that's kind of as overarching as this. So I just wanted to be very upfront with kind of my background in this topic so you know where I'm coming from. So with that out of the way, let's dive in. I will just start off simply by saying I personally do not see any conflict between science and the Bible. But I also recognize that this is not the case for a vast many people, and especially evangelicals. Now, this church, River Tree Community Church, is an eco-church. The, the E in eco stands for evangelical. So that's why I wanted to bring this up especially. In 2015, a study was done by Rice University that found that over one-third of evangelicals saw science and faith to be in direct conflict. This was twice the amount of any other religious group or any other denomination that was part of this study. So why is this? Where does this perceived conflict come from? Well, for me, I might suggest that at least a large part of it comes from reading or using the Bible in a way that it wasn't intended. The Bible is a massively robust and impressive work. It is, was composed by, you know, I don't even know how many dozens, hundreds of people over hundreds of thousands of years. 
and it's comprised of many, many different genres of writing. From poetry, personal letters, courtroom scenes, parables, wisdom literature, law codes, oracles, biographies. That's, that's just naming a few. There's, there's a ton of genres in there. But one genre that is not present is that of science book. Now, I know that may sound funny, and you may be like, well, of course not. Why? Yeah, that, that makes sense. But I think a lot of our issues that we get pitting science against the Bible or science against faith comes from reading the Bible as if it were a science book. I think it comes from misreading genre. I mean, think about genre as a whole. You sit down to read a newspaper very differently than you would read a cookbook or the way you would read a letter from your gram, right? I mean, think about it. These are all different and very distinct genres of writing. You have to approach one kind of with different presuppositions, different mindsets, and you do the other. You know, if you sat down to read a Christmas letter from a family member, the same way you sat down to read, say, an academic paper or article, it, you're, you're going to have some issues. Those are two very different writing styles trying to achieve two very different things. And I think the same thing is true of the biblical text. I would suggest that reading the Bible through the lens of exclusively it being this massive history and biography textbook really does it a huge disservice. To me, that is actually restricting, kind of putting shackles on this amazing book. And I think when we do this, we can get hung up on details in the text and completely overlook the main theme, the main idea, or these powerful messages that are in the text. I think one of my kind of favorite examples where this happens is the book of Jonah. Think about the book of Jonah, or the story of Jonah. What's the first thing you think of? It's the big fish, right? I mean, it's kind of hard not to think about it. It's this is one of the first stories you hear if you grew up in the church. As a kid, you know, for me, it was on, on the felt board. And this makes sense because it's very memorable. It's a giant fish eating a dude and then vomiting him up a few days later. That's memorable. You're going to remember that. But what's the main point of that story? What is that story trying to impart to us? It really doesn't have anything to do with the big fish. To me, Jonah is by far the most powerful example in the entire Bible of forgiveness, of why it is so hard to forgive and why ultimately we need to forgive. All right, so a two-minute quick devotional on Jonah so you can kind of see what I mean by this. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to them to tell them that they've sinned and to try to get them to see the error of their ways so that they can avoid destruction. Basically, God is asking Jonah to go save the people of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a capital city in the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were an extremely cruel and brutal empire. They conquered almost the entire region through the power of their quick and brutal military. This area they conquered included 
what we call the Northern Kingdom of Israel, where the Assyrians pillaged almost the entirety of the land, where the Assyrians raped, killed, and deported most of its people, and where eventually the Assyrians would completely wipe out the country, raising its structures to the ground and wiping the people of the country off the face of the earth forever. They never returned. Now, does anyone know where Jonah is from? He is from a little town called Gath Helfer, which is situated squarely in the northern kingdom of Israel. Oh no. So God is telling Jonah to go to the capital city of the very people responsible for murdering thousands of his countrymen, to the very people who have burned his fields to the ground, to the very people who drug away the women and children of his country, screaming in chains. God wants Jonah to go to those people to save them. Now, I don't know about you, but this would not be the first thing I would want to do. So I understand Jonah's hesitancy here, right? It kind of makes sense. Now, the story moves forward and such, and you have the great, the great fish come in and such. But the story moves and really becomes this amazing emotional journey. This movement toward reconciliation and forgiveness. I mean, I really see the book of Jonah as God giving a step-by-step -step plan for how we can forgive and talking about why it is so important. But all that gets lost for many, many people because we can't see past the big fish. Now to me, whether there's a big fish or there's not a big fish shouldn't change the powerful lesson of Jonah. It shouldn't change this wonderful story of forgiveness. So I think we can very easily create this false dichotomy between the Bible's truth and its humanity. God chose to communicate these amazing divine words, the words of the Bible, to ordinary people. And most importantly, through ordinary people. You know, the Bible didn't suddenly descend on golden clouds with trumpets, you know, Monty Python style, you know, to just fall into our hands. It, it was written, edited, redacted, composed by very real people, spanning very real time periods. So it makes sense that we should expect the Bible to be written in such a way as to under, make, make it be understandable and to make it be relatable to real people, both in the time it was written and for us today. But what does this mean? Does this mean that it is in any way less God's word? I don't think so. And here's an example for kind of what I mean, so you can kind of get an idea for this. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Psalm 16. Now, Psalm 16 is, is a relatively short song of praise. It's, you know, pretty standard. But there's something very, very interesting in verse 7 that I want to point out. 
So this is Psalm 16, verse 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. Or excuse, excuse me. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I, this is a great verse. It is getting at the idea that we should be praising God because God will never leave us. Even at night, even in our darkest moments, God still instructs us and God still leads our hearts. Now, if you have your Bibles out, is there a little note or a little marker next to the word heart? Some of your Bibles might not even have the word heart. If you follow that little marker down, you'll see probably a footnote somewhere at the bottom or the side that says something like Hebrew literary kidney. So what that means is that in this verse's original form, in its original language, the passage literally says, even at night, my kidneys instruct me. What, what, is, what is this about? Basically, at the time the psalm was composed, there was the thought that the kidneys were the center of thought, or the center of emotion, that kind of our being was driven by our kidneys. This is obviously something that is no longer thought or no longer accepted. So our English, our modern English translations, adapted this into a context we could more easily understand, saying that even at night, our heart instructs us. But even this really is in no way scientifically accurate. Our, our hearts really have nothing to do with our emotions, with our mental state. And I think the closest thing we could come to to trying to be somewhat scientifically accurate would be putting in our mind there, saying, even at night, my mind instructs me. And even then, you know, you, you, I'm, I'm not even sure that would be great. But no one argues that the scientific inaccuracy of this passage in any way delegitimizes Psalm 16, in any way undercuts the message, the theme that the psalm is trying to relate. Why? Well, because we recognize that the, this, the, the kidney part is not the main part of the psalm. We recognize that the main idea, the main thrust of the psalm is something much bigger. And that this verse is simply utilizing understandings of its time. And even in our Bibles, translating into modern vernacular, it's doing this to make the message more relatable. Like this makes sense in this context. And I think people can understand it in this verse, but in other places that link sometimes gets severed. A former pastor of mine was, you know, very, ha had a saying, and he used to say that science explains how God did things, and the Bible explains why God did things. Now, while I think there's, this isn't a perfect way of looking at it, I think it's getting at the right idea. I think it's coming at it from the right mindset. And that is that science in the Bible, science and faith, are addressing two different topics. They're trying to answer different questions. So to try to force them to be the same thing, to try to force them to be answering the same questions would be like that idea of trying to shove a square peg into a round hole. It's, it's not gonna work. It, or it might be like 
trying to ask someone to describe what the color purple tastes like. I mean, you could probably pretty accurately say it's a purple Laffy Taffy, but that's besides the point. But you get what I'm saying, right? That the, they're not addressing the same thing. You could even step back. Think about the Bible as a whole. What would you say the main point or purpose of the Bible is? I think most Christians would agree that the main point of the biblical text is to reveal Christ to us. It's to tell us of God's love for us to the extent that Christ was born, lived, died, and was raised again so that we don't have to suffer eternal damnation. That's where the authority of the Bible comes from. It comes from the fact that it speaks truth about God, about Christ, and about his amazing gift of salvation. Yet, we often seem to imply that the Bible's authority is fully rooted and set in its scientific accuracy. That if evolution happened, then somehow that negates the believability of what the Bible says about Christ. And to me, I, those are just, th those aren't the same thing. Those are different topics. So to me, approaching the biblical text with that kind of mindset severely limits and restricts the power of the Bible. It's putting it into a small window. And to me, that is really doing it a disservice. It's limiting the power of God to use this amazing, divine, God-breathed, perfect book for us. Now, I wanted to close out with a couple rapid-fire kind of answers. Like I said, we had a number of questions kind of revolving around this topic. And so I think I put two of them here to kind of address. We, I, I think we had like five or six. Um, so I can't get to all of them, but I wanted just to kind of address some of these ones because some of these had some interesting nuance to them. So it's kind of a rapid fire answer some questions here. First question, what is a Christian supposed to think about evolution, dinosaurs, and creation? So to me personally, I very much believe in evolution both in the micro sense, evolution within a species, and the macro sense, evolution across species lines. I also believe that our God is the divine creator of everything. That God was fully involved and directed this. Now to me, the idea that God would create through evolution does not diminish the creativity of God, the creative majesty or the power of God. And to me, it does not diminish the idea of the Imago Dei or the image of God that is present in us, that is present in humanity. Now, dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs. I was that typical kid who, you know, 8, 9, 10, knew everything about dinosaurs. And I believe dinosaurs are another one of God's amazing creations. But I also don't see dinosaurs walking around at the same time as humans. I know a lot of people have tried to read some passages and try to read dinosaurs into them. And I, I personally just don't see that. I think there's too much of a time span separating dinosaurs and humans to kind of have that interaction going on. Yeah, last question. Archaeology in the Old Testament. Things like Noah and the flood, Genesis, Exodus. How should I understand these? How can archaeology shed light on these? Now, the tricky part about archaeology is that the chances 
of finding archaeological evidence of a one-time kind of localized event are very, very slim. So take the Exodus, for example. The Exodus was an event that happened over a you know, short period of time, a few decades, with a relatively limited amount of people. So there is an extremely small chance, virtually next to nothing, of finding any archaeological evidence of this specific event. A group of people walking across the landscape is not going to leave much of a lasting impact thousands of years later. So for me, rather than to try to look for specific evidence of events or people of the Bible, I like to examine it from a cultural standpoint. I like to zoom out and look at it from a cultural frame. We might not be able to find exact evidence of the specific exodus itself, of that specific group of people. But we do and can find archaeological evidence of other nomadic caravans from around this time. And then we can use this information to paint a better picture of what the exodus might have looked like. So this is an approach that I generally use when coming at archaeology of the Bible. Starting big, starting with, all right, what do we have? What are, what are the cultural knowns of, of this? What has is, what is archaeology told us about the culture as a whole? And then zoom in and then extrapolate that in. Because like I said, the chances of finding a specific evidence of the specific person is, you know, basically impossible. It's so, so rare. So for me, I like to start big and then kind of extrapolate inward with that. Now, as with every other topic this series, this is simply how I personally understand it. And I'm not saying that I am the end-all authority on this topic or any of them we've talked about. I know people will disagree and do disagree with me on this, especially this topic in particular. I, I have a feeling this one will be the one that might, I might get the most pushback and the most disagreement on. And that's 100% okay. I expect that and I welcome that. I would love to talk in dialogue about it. Because this topic, like the other ones we've talked about, these shouldn't be the cornerstone, the defining elements of your faith. They're fun topics that nerds like me love talking about, love debating, love reading about. But they're not topics that anyone's faith should hang on. You can have amazing faith and have a wonderfully close relationship with Christ, no matter where you fall on any of the topics we've talked about today or the past few weeks. The, the thing that is paramount in your faith is that you believe in a God who loves you so much that Jesus came to earth and died so that we wouldn't have to suffer divine justice not only died, but rose so that we could not have to suffer divine wrath, but that instead we could bask in a never-ending fellowship with our loving God. Those are the things that are, you need to hold on to tight. Those are the things that are the cornerstone, foundational elements of your faith. And those are all amazing truths. So hold on to those tight. Join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we, we just thank you 
for this opportunity to come together. And we thank you that you are an amazing God whose love for us is unending, whose compassion is unfathomable, Lord, whose grace is undeniable and unbelievable. And Lord, we are so incredibly humbled to be called by you, to bear your image, to be able to say you are our God. And Lord, we just ask that as we go throughout this week, that you would be present in our hearts, that you would constantly be reminding us how much you love us and how much you delight in us. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.